So John 1 uh, really is one of those passages that has layers upon layers of not only meaning, of the imagery and everything that's included within it, but it gives us foundation after foundation after foundation. One reason why this text in particular is so important is because John intentionally hearkens back uh, to Genesis chapter 1. In fact, if I start with the first three words of John 1, in the beginning, you're not sure if I'm in John 1 yet or if I'm in Genesis 1. And that is quite intentional. John wants us to see his gospel and he wants us to see the person and the work of Christ in light of Genesis 1. He starts at the very beginning. And we see in this imagery here in the first five verses that there, we're introduced to this character who is the Word. All right? And this Word was with God and this Word was God or is God. And that word for the word word in the Greek is logos or logos. I'm sure as I preach throughout today's message, I'm going to say it both ways. I don't know which way is right. You can ask uh, Dr. Kennedy uh, after the service. But that word for word is bursting with meaning. It is bursting with imagery. God himself created the world through words, plural. He issued commands. He spoke into the nothingness. And out of him speaking into the nothingness came everything. That literally means words are at the foundation of everything in this universe. And those words, let there be light, let there be plants, etc., are spoken by and through the Word, the eternal Logos, who is God and is with God. This is the Christmas story of John's Gospel. We don't get a story of the birth. We don't get a story of the shepherds coming. We get Genesis 1-1 in light of Christ. And it shows us that Christmas is creational. It's tied to the act of God creating. It's tied to Genesis 1 because John 1 is an act of new creation. The new creation is breaking in to the old. It's pointing forward to Revelation 21 and 22, the kingdom that is coming. It's not too much to say that you can live your whole life studying the implications of John 1. For all of life and through all of Scripture. And in a very real sense, you and I live in the world that John is describing in John chapter 1. This is the world that the eternal Word created. This is the world that the eternal Word was incarnated into. The same sun, moon, and stars that the Word created and that the Word walked under is the same sun, moon, and stars that you walk under and that He is redeeming through the blood of His cross. And so, I'm sure that as many of you have noticed, uh, this Christmas series uh, has been kind of more of an apologetics type bent. And by that I mean, what I've been trying to do here is to show you through John 1, a defense of the faith. How Christmas is really about establishing how we should understand all of reality. So we have covered so far a Christmas and the birth of Christ and the idea of truth, that Jesus identifies himself as the truth. Last week we covered Christmas as a foundation for morality. Light and darkness, good and evil. Christmas is war, as I said last week, between the forces of good 
and the forces of evil. And this week, we're going to be looking at the issue around basically what type of a world do we live in, according to John 1. What type of a world do you inhabit? And we're going to look at that by looking at the issue of design and information and meaning and purpose. Because John 1 gives you and me a very different picture of the world than the picture that many people choose to live according to. Christmas, in all of its truth and all of its fullness, necessitates a specific view of all of life. Of every facet of life. And Christianity's rivals really don't have a response for well, many of the things that we do and experience as humans. As we've already seen, if this universe created itself, if it is a byproduct of infinite time and chance and blind natural processes, then it is a cold and indifferent universe. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no good. There is no evil. There is no truth. And that is not a very appealing worldview. And in fact, even the people who say they live according to that worldview don't really do so. Consistent thinkers know better uh, than, than others, and they are openly honest about what their worldview means. I'm going to le- read to you a very lengthy quote here from Bertrand Russell. He was a British atheist, a very famous and influential atheist. And he summarizes, what is this world? What does he think this world is? If there is no God, if there is no John 1, 1 and through 5, if that didn't happen, what is the end result of this universe? This is what he says. If Darwinism and naturalism is true. Quote, That man is the product of causes which have no provision of the end that they were achieving. That in his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental a co-location of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought, and no feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration of the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. That the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on this firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Merry Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of year. Unyielding despair. All of this is going to end in vast death of the solar system. None of it matters. Thank you, Bertrand Russell. I'm sure he was the life of the party wherever he was. So I want to spend some, ta- some time today looking at that idea. That this world is just the accidental collection of atoms that has an expiration date and that has no meaning whatsoever. And how John 1, 1 through 5 gives us the eternal origins of Christmas, and gives us a necessary understanding for how we should live in light of it. And so first we're going to look at some problems. Some problems with that idea. We we saw the problem with truth. You can't really know any of these things. If Bertrand Russell is right, you can't really know any of these things anyways. And if he's right, there is no such thing as right and wrong. But there's also this sense that they can't explain the most basic things in science today. 
And when dealing with the problem of life, where did life come from? And why is life the way it is today, which is wonderfully complex, that we are not all just single-cell organisms, but that each and every one of you is a finely tuned and designed machine, as it were. How does that happen? How does that happen in a cold and indifferent universe? And so what we're going to talk about today is really the lies of, of Darwinism and of evolution and naturalism. Because in Darwin's day, Darwin believed, because they didn't have the microscopes that we have today, he believed that the cell was just a very simple blob. Right? Just a blob of plasma with no design whatsoever. And he actually said that if that's not true, well, then my view's probably not right. Well, since about the 1950s on, on, we know that every single one of the billions of cells that make you up and make up all the other organisms in this world are ridiculously complex. They are so complex that they are more finely designed than the computer that you use or the phone that you use. Basically, you have within your, each one of your cells machine upon machines that are dependent upon one another, that make one another. You have machines, for example, in your cells that unwind your DNA. And then you have other machines that make those machines, and you have other machines that then bring the coding for the different amino acids within your cell to that DNA, so that it might be properly ordered. And then you have within your cell other machines that then process that. These machines take that into your cells and then process it. You couldn't design that on your own. No one could. And what scientists will call this is this idea that all of these machines that function within your cell are dependent upon one another is irreducible complexity. That is, they could not have happened that these things just slowly evolved piece by piece because each piece needs the piece next to it to work in the first place. And so you have different machines within your cell that could not slowly evolve. They are all interdependent upon one another. This brings us back to that quote from that other atheist we talked about earlier in the series. The famous scientist and atheist and author Richard Dawkins. He said this, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Right? So you, I know it looks like your cells were designed for a purpose, but that's just the appearance. You're being tricked. Or Francis Crick, one of the guys who helped discover DNA. He said this, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but evolved. So if Crick and Dawkins are saying, I know you will see this constantly as a, as a biology student. You will see this and you'll say, man, that looks like the design. But you have to tell yourself it's not that. You just have to keep telling yourself that it's not actually designed. So we have to ask ourselves the natural question, where, where did all of this apparent design come from? If it didn't come from God, it had to come from somewhere. How do these scientists overcome the problem of design in life? I'll give you a couple possibilities that they throw out. Many scientists will just stand there and they'll, they'll wave their arms and they'll say, time and chance. Just time and chance. Given enough time and enough chance, of these things will just randomly happen. Here's a quote from George Wald a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a former professor at Harvard University. He says this, Time is the hero of the plot. What we regard as impossible on the basis of human experience is meaningless here. Given so much time, the impossible 
becomes possible. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very scientific <laughs> to me. It's like, I know this looks silly and stupid and it couldn't have happened, but given enough time, that, that could just, it could happen. The issue gets even more complicated for us because scientists have another problem in the universe, and they, they call that the Goldilocks problem. If you know the story of Goldilocks, uh, she goes into the three bears' house and she eats one bowl of porridge, it's, it's too hot, one's too cold, and one's just right. And the problem is, is that this universe is so finely tuned for life to happen that it's just right. It's just right. All these different factors just happen to be right that life could even be possible. Let me give you the odds of this just for one. Just one of those many factors of the universe, the expansion rate of the universe. That, the fact that this is just so, just perfectly right, is about one in 10 to the 60th power. That's 10 with 60 more zeros behind it. That's just one of those factors. We have a term for that in probability. That's, it's called impossible. That's just one. It can't happen. But maybe chance fixes the problem. Maybe we are really just that lucky. You and I, we all just got lucky. Some scientists will say, well, we don't need to marvel over the impossibility of it happening because it's here. We're here. We see it. It happened. We got lucky. Maybe chance happened. Well, chance, if you think about it, doesn't actually exist. I came across this listening to the former late great uh, theologian R.C. Sproul. He was talking about chance and the origins of the universe. And he pointed out that chance is a word that you and I use to describe things that we don't really understand. In other words, there's not really such a thing as chance. And the example he gives is a coin flip. And what can be more random uh, than a coin flip? Right, you start a football game off, you, you flip a coin, one team calls it, the other team uh, wins the coin flip. And as R.C. Sproul explained, if you built a vacuum and you built a lever and you controlled all of the variables within that and put the exact amount of force on again and again, you could get heads every single time. In other words, when you flip a coin, it's not pure chance. You just can't calculate all the variables. If you could, you could predict every time what it was going to be. There's a certain force acting on the coin. He said he, he told this to his uh, unbelieving scientist friend, and he goes, yeah, you're right. Chance doesn't exist. It doesn't. Wave your hands all you want about time plus chance, but chance simply is a word we use for something we don't yet understand. Uh, so a, a different astronomer, an astronomer George Greenstein says this, nothing in all of physics explains why its fundamental principles should conform themselves so precisely to life's requirement. He's like, we can't make sense of this. Everything's just perfectly aligned so that we could have life. We don't know why. So you can't look to time, you can't look to chance. Well, some other scientists will argue, to overcome the odds, a theory known as the multiverse. Right? If you've seen any superhero movies, there's this idea that there's infinite realities out there. And in the superhero movies, all of those multiple universes that exist, there's like a hundred or a million Pastor Levi's running around in different universes that are slightly different uh, than I am. Maybe there's a short Levi in there somewhere. I don't know. But they're, they're picking up on a legitimate scientific theory. But the problem is, is that the scientists formulated this theory not because that there's a bunch of life in all these other universes, but that all the other ones must be dead. To overcome all of these odds, all the other universes are cold and dead. We just happen to be in the one that's not. 
I look at that and say, well, that's, that's a crazy attempt to ignore the reality of God. And it doesn't sound too scientific to me at all. Now, not to be outdone in all of this silliness, both Francis Crick and Richard Dawkins have admitted that one possibility to overcome the impossibility of life on earth is that a cell was transported here from somewhere else in the universe. Yeah, that's right, aliens. Aliens brought life to this world. Again, Francis Crick helped discover DNA. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. Someone's delusional in this equation, it's not me. Still others will suggest that the universe wanted to be known. So why is there life in the universe? Because the universe needed to be known. And in order for the universe to be known, you need life. Back to Greenstein. The cosmos does not exist unless observed. The universe brought forth life in order to exist. Let me read that to you again. The cosmos does not exist unless observed. The universe brought forth life in order to exist. So the universe can only exist if it is known. So how did it exist to create life before it if there was nothing there to know it? Okay, these guys are supposed to be the smart ones. Wald chimes in. He says, the universe wants to be known. How does an impersonal universe want anything? And so within all of this, you have the idea of spontaneous generation. That life just spontaneously happened to come about. Back to, back to Wald. He says, most modern biologists, having reviewed with satisfaction the downfall of spontaneous generation, that life just spontaneously came about, yet unwilling to accept the alternate belief in special creation, that's God, so we know that this has fallen, that spontaneous generation doesn't exist, but we can't accept special creation, these scientists are left with nothing. I think a scientist has no choice but to approach the origin of life through the hypothesis of spontaneous generation. It doesn't make sense. The only other option is God. So he goes on and he says, one only has to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet here we are, as a result, I believe in spontaneous generation. It's impossible, but the only other option is God, so I choose to believe that everything came from nothing. Guys, that's not science. It's faith. It's Romans 1. The universe declares, quite plainly, that God exists. The hurdles are too great otherwise. But man in his wickedness and his unrighteousness will invent aliens or multiple dead universes or spontaneous generations so that they won't have to look upon God. There is so much more we could talk about. An even bigger problem than all of this is information. That you have DNA and genetic codes in your cells that have information in it. Information theory teaches us that information can only come from an intelligent origin. In other words, you can't just mix up a bunch of letters and, and get a book. If there's actual information, it came from someone giving the information. Otherwise, it's not information. So all of this leads to that inescapable conclusion. Either this universe is, as Francis Crick says, a miracle that defies everything that they believe, or God created it. Who's exercising more faith? I'll give you one last quote from a scientist here. 
a Jewish, Jewish scientist who's not actually a believer, Arno Penza, he also won a Nobel Prize. He says this, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with a very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. He continues, The best data we have is exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. End quote. You sitting here, who have Genesis 1, who have the Psalms and the whole of Scripture, you know the universe better than the best scientists in this world. You may not know all of the fine-tuned details. You may not be able to uh, decode DNA. But you know the universe better because you have God's Word. Because Christ, who is the eternal Word, created all things, He holds all things together, and you are His people. You do not need to be ashamed thinking that you are crazy and that they are so much intellectually superior to you. Aliens, multiverse, spontaneous generation, it's absurdities. And they know it. But they know that the only other option is that there's a God who they must answer to. Now this brings us back to Christmas. Emily said to me the other day, your sermon didn't sound very Christmassy. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> to the idea of God the Son as the eternal Word of God. That title, Word, has so much to it. Scripture is the Word of God. And Scripture, as the Word of God, testifies to you about the Word of God, who is the Son. And we come to Him, and we've come to know Him, not because any of us in this room have seen Him, but because we have the written Word of God. And so, the Logos of God, that is Christ, carries with it a lot of weight, that title, and layers of meaning. God speaks. He uses words to create everything you and I see and experience. And through the eternal word, he created all things, we read in uh, John 1 and Colossians 1. And this word upholds all things, and all things exist for that eternal word. And this message of creating, that God created through words, by the word, gives a lot of uh, meaning to us. Why did God use words to make everything? One reason is that it shows us that our God is rational. He speaks words that are intelligible. He speaks words that have content. There's a battle. Um, uh, he could have created the world, or we could have a story, if the Bible wasn't true, of the world being created in multiple different ways. If you look at other ancient religions, a battle between two forces. A God who uses his hands to shape the universe. But we don't get that. We get a God who speaks the universe into existence out of nothing, which just so happens to, 2,000 years later, to match up exactly with what science says the universe is. A God who speaks, he communicates. And to communicate requires a rational mind. It requires knowledge. It requires intelligence. It requires information. What are words but vessels of information that we use to speak and to convey how we think how we feel, who we are. And so God creates using words by divine command. 
And he does so intentionally. And so God speaks through the words, and words come to us. And that should make us marvel at God and his creation, because words are not mere randomness, but they are intentionally designed. They're not an arrangement of random symbols on a page or random noises. If you've ever been like me sitting in the classroom trying to learn a different language. In high school and college, uh, it was Spanish. I don't know any Spanish anymore. In seminary, it was Greek and Hebrew. I only know a little bit of Greek and Hebrew. If you ever try to learn a foreign language, you know that languages are complicated. They have information and design to them. It requires a great amount of work and intelligence to learn a language that you did not grow up in. And all of that flows from a God who himself speaks. Nothing else in creation speaks like humans do. Why? Because we bear the image of God who creates with words and through the words, or through the word. Words are revelatory. They shed light on reality. Words are information in their alphabets and the definition of their words. Words are knowledge to communicate and to have and to share information with one another. Words are powerful. You literally build up relationships or tear them down with your words. One thing the Bible speaks about again and again is to guard your tongue and to guard your words. Words are powerful. The pen is indeed mightier than the sword. This universe is literally dripping with words for it was created by the divine and eternal word of God. For God spoke through the word, by words, everything into existence. Gone is any question, if you read John 1, 1 through 5 clearly, gone is any question, where did design come from? Where did life come from? Where did communication come from? Where did meaning or information come from? If all you have is the five books of Moses and the rest of Scripture, you can make sense of this universe. Because you have the Word who made everything. Logos is the, in the ancient world, that word for word, carried with it many different meanings and nuances. It's also the, uh, the idea of reason or wisdom. As I explained above, that layer of meaning I think is intentional in John's work. Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. It's not just words, it's wisdom. For this reason, Paul says of Christ, in him are stored all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the eternal word, we find all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. This is what that one scientist meant. If you only had the Bible, you can arrive at a right understanding of the universe. This is why it is not too much to say that Christianity is the key that unlocks understanding all of life. It unlocks the universe, for this is how the universe came into being. It is no accident of history that the scientific revolution occurred in the Christian West. It happened because Christianity aligns with what is there. And so you and I do not need to wring our hands. We do not need to look to aliens. We do not need to look to multiple universes. We look to the God who is there. The eternal word created all things. And that is a part of the Christian or Christmas message. And John brings us back to Genesis 1 for a reason. God made this universe. Christ is there at the beginning. 
All things were made by him, through him, and for him. But the story does not end there. The word did not just make the universe. The story of Christmas is that the word joined his creation. He entered into it. The word who made everything takes upon himself a human nature. He joins his creation. This type of thinking was a stumbling block to Jews and anathema to the Roman and Greek philosophers. God wouldn't add a human nature to himself. This universe, according to the Greeks and the Romans, this physical world was evil. It was meant to be escaped. God's not going to join that. And yet that's what we find. God, who made this world good, but though this world fell into sin, sent his only son to join his creation to save it. And so we read, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We need to be careful here. To become flesh does not mean that the essence of the eternal Son was changed, that it was mixed in any way, but what it means is that God the Son added to himself a full human nature to go into his creation so that he might die for it. That word, that logos, the infinitely glorious creator, the great I am, is there in the womb of Mary. He was born and found in a manger. The wonder is that the one who created all things and who holds all things together was then dependent upon his mother to live. The one who is the Logos, the source of wisdom and knowledge, had to, in his human nature, grow in wisdom and in knowledge before all men. The wonder of Christmas is that it depends on the story of creation, for Christ is the creator, and yet it centers on the creator joining his rebellious creation, so that he might save it. God the Son comes to a world trapped in darkness to bring light. And here's the kicker. He comes to die for the sins of many, and so that he might remake his creation. The focus on creation in John 1 is not just to point back, but it is to point forward that this is something new. This is God putting down the groundwork for a new act of redemption and creation. And if you read the Gospel of John very carefully, it's very clear that John is laying out a new creation week. There's a certain amount of days in the opening chapters of John where he's laying out that creation week again as Christ comes and starts his ministry. This is his advent, his birth, the new creation breaking into the old. So Advent shows us the coming of Christ the first time and points us to his second coming. Christ will come again, and as he reclaims his creation, he will remove all sin, death, chaos, entropy, and all that is wrong. And he re he will renew and remake all things. The beauty of this world bears his marks, even in a veiled way. But that beauty that you see, all of that snow stuck on the tops of the trees, looking like a Christmas card out there this week, all that beauty is veiled to what it will look like in the new creation. The beauty, order, 
design and glory of this world is but a pale glimpse of Christ's character as the eternal word, word, and it is a mere foreshadow of what his eternal kingdom will be like. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. This world is purposefully designed. It is moving to its end in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word we see your truth. That in your word we can see your world rightly. Lord, may we live in confidence this Christmas season. May we rejoice in the good news that Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ is coming back. Hasten that day. Help us to celebrate your Son's birth with joy, faith, and confidence. And Lord, we ask that you may come again quickly. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.